I'll never forget the Christmas when my brother ransacked mom and dad's room to find all of the Christmas presents. Now, if you're any kid, you know that mom and dad help Santa, of course, by supplementing some of the presents under the tree. And, and we always knew where they hid the presents. I mean, it was no big secret, and the temptation was real. But they would always threaten us with one line. They always said, if you look for the presents, you'll ruin the surprise. Well, one year, the anticipation got the better of my brother. My mom and dad, they're going off to the store. They're running some errands. And he just goes into the room and shuts the door. And he starts ransacking it. I mean, opening up the drawers, looking under the bed, getting in the closet, sifting through all the clothes. And the funny thing is, is he doesn't even have the brains to put it all back together again. So they come home, they know what's happened, and they start interrogating us, and I was the first to squeal. I said, he did it. I don't want any punishment that's associated with this. I'm innocent. The eerie thing about it all was he didn't get any punishment. I mean, at all, not even a talking to. The only thing they said to him is they said, you're not allowed to tell your brothers what their presents are or else. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I didn't know what or else meant, and I didn't want to find out. So Christmas comes, and it's a big dud for him. Me and my other brother who didn't look at the presents, we're opening our presents and we're making sure that the excitement is extra loud as we see what's behind the wrapping paper. But him, I mean, he's tearing it open and there's no like, wow, I wasn't expecting that or man, not close again, nothing. Just a big letdown. And I'll tell you, he never did it again. It made me think that, you know, one of the key elements of Christmas is, of course, the surprise element of Christmas. It's the waiting and the wondering. It's the aha moments. It's when you open that present and, and mom says, oh, I was really hoping that you would like that one. And I think that surprise is a part of the tradition of Christmas because God embedded so much surprise in the Christmas story. We're going to be talking through a famous passage tonight, the Annunciation of Jesus, and it's found in Luke's Gospel. It's a story with so many surprises. In fact, we're going to unpack four of those surprises tonight. I want to begin with the first one. The first surprise in this story is the basis of God's choice. We pick up with the first four verses of that passage. The story goes like this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Let me ask you, 
if you were responsible for the person who would bring, selecting the person who would bring God's Son into the world, what sort of criteria would inform your decision? What would you be looking for? What sort of family would they come from? What place would they be born? Would it be a big city, uh, a place that's well-known, an epicenter of sorts? What would the family's education background be like, an economic background be like? Well, Martin Luther said this. He said he might have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas's daughter. Now, Caiaphas in this time was the high priest. And she was fair and rich and clad in gold, embroidered raiment, and intended by a retinue of maids in waiting. But God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. I mean, it's all so interesting. Jesus doesn't come into the world via Jerusalem. He comes into the world in a non-place. That's what Nazareth was. It was nowhere. Podunk. I mean, they don't even mention the name Nazareth in the Old Testament. Of all the Jewish rabbis living in this time, not one of them made reference to Nazareth. It kind of makes me think of, you know, places like Valley City, Illinois, population 13, or Hartley, Delaware, population 74. The only reason I know of those places is because I went online and I searched, what are some towns that no one knows about in America? So these towns make a list because they're so obscure. Would we know of Nazareth had Mary not been from Nazareth? Of course not. And, and, and think about this. From all indicators, had Gabriel never visited Mary, we wouldn't know about her either. She would have went on and married Joseph and would have had numerous poor children. They probably never would have went very far from their house, maybe just a few miles, if that. And she would have been like thousands or millions of others, basically nobodies from nowhere who no one would remember. But Gabriel says to her, he says, you are a favored one. Now, Really, to understand the, the weight of the meaning of that statement, you have to understand that Mary is not favored because there's something intrinsically special about her compared to anyone else in the world at this time. Now, if you look at Mary's story, you, you realize that she's really just this inexperienced girl. She may have been 14 or so years old. We don't know the exact age, but we know she was particularly young that was the custom of the time. So she hasn't really lived much of life to do anything big or grandiose for God. No, the, the, the surprise in all of this is that Mary gets God's favor because God loves to lift up the lowly and the humble. She sang about this later in her Magnificat. She said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, 
all generations will call me blessed, and they will call her blessed because of all the billions of women who have lived in history, only one, only Mary, would carry the Son of God and nurse him. Now, what I love about this surprise, just imagine if, if God had chosen the normal route. What if he based his decision of the mother of Jesus based off of money, class, competence, notoriety? Well, if God had gone the normal route, then God would have really only responded to the 1%, to the very, very few. Jesus would have just been another unobtainable elitist that most of the world could not relate to. But by choosing Mary... God went to great lengths to show that he cares about the little known, the forgotten, the undesirable, the nobody. That's what's incredible about God's grace. He knows the places where no one else knows. He cares for the forgotten people that no one else thinks about. He came to the world. He sent his son into the world to that ordinary lowly place called Nazareth, so that all people might know that there's salvation in this Son. Now, let's take another look at one of the surprising features of this story. We, we go to the nature of Jesus as described by Gabriel. He says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great. And he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Now, as we begin to unpack this first, think of his name, Jesus. The name Jesus meant Savior. A very common name, actually, for boys in this day and age. But as you begin to unpack what Gabriel's saying about Jesus, you, you become aware that he's unlike any other boy who has ever been born. He says that he will be great. Now compare that to what Gabriel said of John the Baptist earlier. He said of John the Baptist that he would be great in the sight of the Lord. That means that because of God, John the Baptist would be great because of what he does on God's behalf. But Jesus, the Bible says, will be great in his own right, as in comparable to God, as in the Son of God. And the next three verses contain all of these Old Testament Easter eggs. Are you familiar with the concept of Easter eggs in movies? Yeah, you know, if you're not familiar with it, let me give you an example. When they take a movie and they make it from a book, sometimes what they'll do, because they don't have the same amount of time, right? They're making a movie. It takes about two hours. That's all the attention span we have. So they have to really reduce the movie down to the core elements, the core plot. And what they'll do is they'll hide little references and little surprises in the movie for those of you who read the book, right? I'm reading or watching a series right now of a book that I read, and I'm just loving the Easter eggs. Now, the New Testament 
is full of Easter eggs of the Old Testament. As in, if you know the Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament, you get all of these references that are made in the New Testament. And this is full of Easter eggs. Let me give you a couple of examples. He says that, one of them, that Jesus is going to fulfill the Davidic covenant. Now, you would understand that reference if you went back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. He tells him that he's going to rule forever. Now, you would get that reference if you went back to Daniel chapter 7. So many prophecies being fulfilled right now in just three short verses. This is what Gabriel's saying, bottom line. You're going to become pregnant. The name of your son is going to be salvation He is going to be called the Son of God. Indeed, He is going to be the long-awaited Messiah. Mary, being young and must have been overwhelmed at this point as Gabriel is saying these things. But I love the way Mary thinks. You see, she goes right to the logical question. If you look at Mary in the Gospel of Luke, you, you get a little bit of her personality. It, it comes out. You, you, you come to understand that she's this thinker, this contemplative uh, spirit. She would, it, it says in Luke a couple of times that she would ponder things and treasure them in her heart. She would hear something. She would mull over it. She would come to think about what is the significance of this. And, and this woman who's probably got a pretty sound mind asks the logical question. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? That's a good question, Mary. How's that going to work? Now, Mary is not asking out of doubt. Zechariah asked out of doubt. You remember, he said, how can this happen? That's calling God's abilities into question. Mary's saying, how will this happen? As in, I can't conceive of a pathway for this to take place. I'm not married. I'm a virgin. And they didn't have a term back then called biology, but she knew how babies came into the world. So Gabriel explains it to her. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. The verb overshadowed carries the concept of the Shekinah presence of God in the tabernacle. Now that's a story from the Old Testament. The Israelites had built the tabernacle. They had finished it. They had dedicated it to God. And then God's Shekinah glory came and inhabited the tabernacle. It was something that was seen and felt. It was like a thick cloud that consumed the tabernacle. So much so that the people of God could not go into the tabernacle while the Shekinah glory presence was there. Now Gabriel says that the power of the Most High in the Spirit 
is going to descend upon Mary. Maybe it's even happening right now as he's making this pronouncement, and that the Christ child would be the result. Now, this is the stunning nature of Jesus' birth. Uh, We've been going through a series at church called The Miraculous Births, and basically what we were doing is just tracing some of the stories in the Bible that featured miraculous births, obviously in anticipation of the coming of Jesus. Now, some of those miraculous births, you, you could, if you wanted to, try to explain them away. The story we looked at last week was Elizabeth. She had a child when she was well advanced in years. You might say, well, yeah, that's, that's really unlikely, but it's not unheard of. Or the case of Hannah. Is she wasn't able to have a child for many, many, many years. But then again, we all know someone potentially who couldn't have a child for a while, but then it just happened for them. But what about a virgin birth? Anybody know anyone that conceived through a virgin birth? No, you see, the whole point of the virgin birth is for God to showcase to us that there's only one possible answer for how this happened. I did it. Period. God had to make this happen. You see, we run a risk when we throw the miracles of the Bible out. The miracles of the Bible, again, are to reveal to us that God is at work. So when I dismiss the miracles of the Bible, I literally throw the baby out with the miracles. I dismiss the God of the Bible, and I shouldn't dismiss the God of the Bible because he spoke and worlds came into being. That's how incredibly powerful the God of the Bible is. He turns the laws of nature upside down because those laws are his laws. And the the angel Gabriel says, with this God, all things are possible. There will be nothing impossible with this God. Why? Because he's in control. If he says something's going to happen, it happens. Because he's the one that made the rules, made the laws. Now, we should take comfort in that. Because if God can bring the Son of God into the world through a virgin birth, it also means that God can fulfill all kinds of other promises that he made, including in the Bible where he said that he would save people from their sins. Now, I don't know about you, but as I look at the world, as I look at the brokenness, as I look at how it seems like society and even people are spiraling out of control— I feel like I need to be saved. And as I look at the Bible, God has promised to do that through His Son. If He's the God who can bring Jesus into the world, if He's the God who can speak and everything comes into existence, He's also the God who can save you and me. Now, we'll get more to that. But first, let's look at Mary's response. Because I don't know about you, but if I'm in Mary's shoes... I would have had a lot of questions besides the obvious. You see, I would have been like, Gabriel, when? When is this going to happen? You know, I've got a timeline in my mind of how my life's going to play out, and I'd love to know when are you going to bring this about. I'd also be asking the question, Gabriel, 
you know people are going to be talking, like how, are, how is this going to work out without me looking really, really bad? I mean, I live in Nazareth. Everyone knows everything about everyone else. And there are people in this town that like to talk. I'm not sure, Gabriel, if I really want to go through with this. But Mary doesn't get into any of that. Listen to her response. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. It turns out from this story that there is just something special about Mary. There's a lot we can learn from her. In fact, she shows us the final surprise in this story that there are really only two credentials God's looking for. We seem to think that God has a laundry list of credentials that he's looking for, that I've got to check all of these boxes, and then God will be pleased with me. But there's only two credentials, as we see in this story. The first is availability. The second is a responsive heart. So not the things that we tend to find so enamoring, not incredible talent, not charisma, not a laundry list of good deeds or a noble upbringing. Just two things, availability and a responsive heart. And that's the surprise of Christmas. The surprise of Christmas is that anyone can approach God if they come to him in the same way Mary did. I'm available and I have a responsive heart. Why does God care so much about my heart attitude? Well, I have a little object lesson over here, and maybe that would help us to understand this. See, what I have up here is just simply three glasses. And this is not a magic trick, because I'm not good at magic, so don't worry about that. Three glasses. Now, the first glass, and these all represent different states of heart. The, the first glass is filled with grape juice. And this represents the self-fulfilled heart. This heart's full. It doesn't perceive any need. It doesn't believe it lacks anything. The, the self-fulfilled life might come because I have money or I'm competent or, or I just believe my life's full because of the people and the experiences that I'm having. But what happens with the self-fulfilled individual is that when God tries to pour his blessings into this person's heart, it's already too full to receive him. So for this person to allow God into their heart, well, they would have to empty themselves. They would have to change their desires in terms of what they want to be filled with. Now, this middle cup, I submit to you, represents the self-contained heart. So this person is happy to receive the blessings of God, but notice that it's all contained to them. They'll take God's blessings, they'll read the Bible, they'll pray, but it never really translates into real-world trust for God or real-world love for God or real-world concern for others. This person in the Bible, the poster child for this, was the Pharisee. It was all about them. The last person is what I would call the broken person. This is the state of heart where 
This person says, I don't bring anything to the table. I know that I need a Savior. In fact, I welcome God's blessings of forgiveness and salvation in my life. And, and as this person receives the blessings of God, notice that those blessings pour out through their brokenness. This broken person receives the blessings of God and they just can't contain what God's done in their life and they want to distribute those blessings into the lives of others. And what I love about this person, look at the self-contained person. There's a limit to the amount of blessing that they receive. kind of just stops after a while. But this person, because they keep pouring it out, can just keep receiving more and more of God. More than anything for you this Christmas, I don't want you to miss out on the surprise of His grace. God sent His Son into the world to be born of a lowly virgin named Mary so that people could receive unlimited favor through this woman who received God's favor. She showed us the way to Him. And the way has to do with the heart attitude. If you ever felt like God is distant, well, you learn from this story that if you turn to Jesus, He comes near. You are going to gain a right relationship with Him. If you've ever felt that, that you're too broken for God to accept you, well, what we learn from this story is that when you turn to Jesus, God can make you whole. You might have something in your past where you say, I've done something so wrong that God could never forgive me. What we learn from this story is that with God, all things are possible. He can forgive even your past. And the way you turn to Him is you have to be available and you have to be responsive from the heart. Let's bow our heads and I just want to pray over you. Lord, I thank You for the message of Luke chapter 1, the story of Jesus is coming into the world. Thank you for the Virgin Mary and what she teaches us, of course, about the miracle of Christmas. But more than anything, we thank you for her son, Jesus. Jesus came into the world to live the life that I couldn't live, to die on the cross for my sins. And of course, he rose again from the dead. He conquered death, showing that he's the Lord of life. Lord, give us a responsive heart. Give us an open heart to this Jesus that we might trust him, walk with him, and follow him. We pray this in your name. Amen.